You are listening to the Enormo cast. When it comes to Sportiva, I often praise the longevity of their venerated classics like the Mira. Because, well, if it ain't Baroque, don't fix it. Italian Baroque, that is. But as we know, I'm a stick in the mud whose glory days are well behind him. But you, dear listener, still have your best days waiting to jump out at you like a puppy wearing a backpack full of caramel corn. So hey, forward thinkers, let's take a gander at what's new over at Sportiva.com. The redesigned Cantana Lace is an absolute edging machine. The updated Tarantula line provides comfort and performance at a price point for everybody. The TX2 Evo adds even more performance to Sportiva's stow-and-go approach shoes. And the new Mantra is a minimalist slipper so light and flowy, you'll swear you accidentally showed up to the gym in only your underwear. Just like in that dream you had last night. Don't worry, I just looked down too. So when it comes to keeping you thinking ahead, Sportiva is there with innovation at every turn. Why not see what's up and head over to Sportiva.com or follow them on Instagram. And remember, Sportiva is a proud sponsor of the EnormaCast. Do you like compliments? Compliments are good, right? From the outright, straight-to-your-face statements of praise to the knowing look and slight chin jut from your favorite bro at the gym, compliments can turn your frown upside down in an instant. And hands down, of all the gear I pedal on the Normacast, the item that receives the most out-of-the-blue compliments are the splitter hats from PeterWGilroy.com. You know, the ones with the titanium plaques and badges. That's right, titanium on a hat. Peter started making these hats a few years ago and has kept the styles coming with designs inspired by the great mountain ranges of the world. So if you're one of those people with a head, go to PeterWGilroy.com and check out the splitter hats and all the wearable art that Peter creates. Even better, receive a discount and help out the EnormaCast by entering Enormo at checkout. That's PeterWGilroy.com and enter Enormo at checkout. Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? You, you playing here? We're doing the uh, Enormo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big house. place. That's on the town. That's a big nice. place. You sold oh, so it out. I'll see. You really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed having them with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, La Sportiva, and with support from Maxim Ropes. Maxim has been keeping the normal cast off the deck since 2012. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the EnormaCast. This is your host, Chris Galus. It is May 17th, about 9.30 in the morning here in Colorado, 2022. And this is episode 242 of the EnormaCast, a conversation with Scott Franklin. So yeah, this is right in my 80s fetish wheelhouse. 
Do you know the name Scott Franklin? Anybody my age that's been climbing as long as I have totally knows Scott Franklin. Maybe some of you have heard the name. He's another guy who changed climbing in fundamental ways in the 80s, early 90s. But for whatever reason, we just forgot the 80s. Forgot all the stuff that went down, even though, as I've said before, what the climbers of the 80s did was pretty much codify what we do as climbers these days. Eschewing taboos against hangdogging, getting rid of yo-yoing, coming up with the red point, coming up with some of the sort of rules of what it means to have sent a climb, for better or worse, I guess. You know, all those rules, keeping us down, the man. Anyhow, Scott Franklin coming up on the Enormacast. But first, a gentle reminder, just a gentle one. Just going to ease in here real close. Rub your shoulders a little bit. This isn't going to hurt at all. Maybe you feel a little pinch, but that's it. I am a keynote speaker at the International Climbers Festival in Lander, Wyoming. 14th to the 17th of July. Tickets on sale at climbersfestival.org. Myself, James K.G. Kagambi, Brittany Gorris, Hayden Jameson, talking about climbing on a stage. Fabulous. Lots of other stuff going on. Clinics. Parties, trade fairs, art walks. Just a good time to be in Lander. Yeah, that wasn't so bad, that wasn't. Okay, with that behind us, let's get to this interview with Scott Franklin. Scott Franklin straddled the old school in the gunks, no hangdogging, lower off every time you fall, pull the rope, start again, all the way through the sport climbing revolution starting up there, for the most part, in the U.S. in Smith Rocks. But Scott went on to climb all over the country, basically just coming to your town and doing the hardest route, either putting it up or repeating it, and then leaving a wake of jaws dropped. Dropped jaws. Jaws laying all over the place. But that's what Scott did, also known as Scotty. Scotty Franklin for the longest time. I don't know when he dropped the Scotty. Maybe he got to a certain age and he was like, enough of that. Nevertheless, he had the skills to pay the bills. He started out in trad, doing scary stuff, placing small gear, taking big whippers, even free soloing up to 513, and then moved right on through the sport climbing era and became the best sport climber in the United States and close to the best sport climber in the world, actually. I don't know what he did as a boulder himself, but he started Franklin Climbing, which uh, were some of the first people to make bouldering-specific gear like pads and whatnot. So he was in that revolution as well. Such an important figure in climbing helped create the way that we climb today. And after raising a family, starting another successful business, Lumos Solar, he's still just as psyched on climbing as he always has been. Didn't get grumpy and disappear. Still after it. All right, let's get to it. But you know what? I had to break out one last time. This will be the last time you ever hear it the classic Dawn Patrol commercial. It's a little dated, but the fact that Black Diamond lets me do this sort of stuff just makes me giggle. I hope it makes you giggle too. Well, howdy, buckaroos. It's springtime, and them foals are kicking, and the sun's coming up earlier and earlier, which only means one thing. Your Dawn Patrol's going to have to start earlier too. Let's face it, the only thing better than first tracks is first gram. That's right. 
Your sick shit should be the first thing them losers have stayed up all night binge-watching Tiger King see in their feed. Right as that first sip of joe from a to-go cup dribbles inevitably down their chins. Damn, they'll think. Sending V3 at 4 a.m.? That is sick. Well, Black Diamond has everything you need for a proper Dawn Patrol mission. Headlamps to light the hallway as you sneak out. The perfect layering system to peel when you start to get as moist as a newborn lamb. They got ski gear for skiers that aren't over it yet. And climbing gear for overstoked climbers like us. And even bouldering pads. Because truth is, morning Mountain Dew sounds great if you want to punch your hand through a car window. But it sucks for actual pebble wrestling. So let Black Diamond support your morning mania and that inevitable drop in productivity by 1pm because they literally make every damn thing a climber needs except the caffeine. Wake up and head over to blackdiamondequipment.com or your favorite local shop for all the gear you need on your next dawn patrol. And you know, Black Diamond loves this damn podcast. Let's go back to the gunks. And the the cool thing, at least about the, the stuff I learned about you and the gunks is that one of the formidable things that happened was that you had a crew and you had um, a few young, really strong friends that drove you, I think. And that was like, and that's another like really, you know, common, but, but exciting part of like climbing where these, these energy units, if you will, like got together and like pushed each other. So can you talk a little bit about that crew and who you were climbing with basically when you were a kid, you know, I'm thinking of Jordan Mills, L diamond are the two that jump right. Exactly. Out, yeah. Right? That, yeah. That's so, the crew for sure. So talk about that crew coalescing and what it did for like your attitude towards climbing and how it drove you. You know, looking back at that time, I mean, Jordan and Al and I were, were definitely a crew, you know, I trying to remember how we even met thinking back. It's so long ago. Right. Um, you know, but I think when we met each other, we realized like we were definitely kind of on the same path. We're just completely fired up about climbing. We all kind of came from, you know, I lived in New York City, so did Al. Jordan was from New Jersey, but we all met in the gunks. Yeah, we just hit it off right away. Um, and it was it was like a, it was a match made in heaven. You know, we were on the same program totally. And we, we all were going to school at SUNY New Paltz more or less <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> as it goes as it goes and um you know i remember our, we just started climbing together and we were as you said i've been mean, really pushing each other we met and we were probably at different stages you know probably climbing like 511s we were getting through the you know the kind of early classics at that at the gunks at that point and um you know pushing up to 11 plus and starting to get into climbing 512 was like the big that's kind of when we met, really. We were kind of right on the verge of getting the first 512s. And this is probably 1983, 84, something mm-hmm. like that. Can't remember exactly. And, um, you know, I remember, like, for us, everything, all the benchmarks were like gunks roots. You yeah. know, it wasn't like you could go to Rifle and do, like, the easiest 12A and then the next five 12As. There's, like, there was Kansas City. There was Gravity's Rainbow. There's only a few routes you could do to have or have not, stuff like that. And we just worked our way through those. Those were the routes. Mm-hmm. And the style was you climb up and try and do it. And if you fall off, you lower the ground. You can leave the rope up there, but you've got to start from the ground again. You try again. That was the game. And, and that's what we did. And then, you know, then we would 
we got through some of those routes and then it just, just kind of spiraled from there. And I remember our first trips were like, we realized, you know, the w- problem with the gunks is the weather's terrible. Mm-hmm. Like it's mostly bad. Um, it's more like terrible most of the year. And there's two, two weeks of the year where it's the best place in the world. <laughs> and there's some British climbers going like, you don't even know what you're talking exactly, about. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, the Brits totally can relate, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, but we were like literally climbing the walls and we shared an apartment, um, some kind of student apartment, just disgusting place. And, you know, I remember we, you know, so the early climb wall, we like nailed some, you know, little blocks of wood on the wall, we climbing the walls, literally climbing the walls because we were going so crazy because the weather was so bad. And um, that, that's kind of where it all started. Right. You know, 1983, you've got 512 in the gunks. You know, it, you just talked about rifle, like going and doing a 12A rifle. It's, you know, it's a whole different like thing, right? It's, yeah, that's yeah. like entry level now, you know? And so to try to put it in perspective, I mean, that's, you guys were climbing up towards cutting edge climbing at the time, maybe not the very top, but you're in, you're getting into the elite. Right. We were in, in the mix for sure. Yeah. yeah. So you got this crew of young kids and I'm kind of curious because you've got this really traditional place as gunks, right? Like one of the, Yosemite Boulder gunks was like these places in the fifties, even or like where yeah. shit was going down. And so you, you had mentors, you had guys, older guys, older, like gunkies who were like on board. It sounds like typically when you've got a bunch of young kids, you're like just amping their way through stuff. You also get a little bit of pushback from the old guard. Was there, was there both of that? There was, it was funny. We were, you know, when we were kind of coming up in that sort of five twelves and we were really kind of getting into the game, we were really our own little bubble. We mm-hmm. didn't really interact with like the, the uh, super elites, you know, Kloon right. and Grunberg and Hugh Herr was still, you know, really active there. We could, we knew about that. Interacting with Hugh Herr, I think is difficult. Either. Yeah. We, we, I mean, I, when I tried I mean, to interact with them, it was. <laughs> Yeah, that's challenging. Different, different, <laughs> different issues, but we we were aware of them. And I think the interesting thing was we had the attitude of like, you know, we knew what the standards were, so we're like, oh well, we can do that. You know, like okay, that's what those guys are doing. So that's where we that was a starting point. Mm-hmm. So for us, the idea of like, you know, we thought of so for example, Kansas City is like that's a good first five twelve. You know, looking back, I think people call it twelve B now. You know, and it's I'm sure it's it's not like doing you know defensive spades and rifle. That's right. a lot more. Uh, of a program, you know, like two pins and a roof or whatever, you know, the roots are a little more, um, a little more old school, engaging, a little more engaging yeah. typically, and <laughs> probably more physical and brutal in a lot of ways, typical gunks. But um, at that time that we were definitely in our own little bubble and really we didn't kind of cross paths and kind of get into that next level with the clunes, Grunberg, et cetera, until I think really that kind of, time we intersected with them was when I was putting up survival of the fittest. That's when we first like kind of really our, our worlds kind of met. Sure. And it was cool. I mean, we felt like, wow, we're like really part of the scene now. Like right. we were, we were definitely. And I think at that point we realized like we're, we're part of the driving force here. Like we're the ones setting the new standard. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's pretty cool. And, and I know Russ really well and, and just love him and admire him. And, you know, he, he was a world climber like that. That's, I think, one of the hallmarks of, of what he kind of did was, was break out of that place, you yep. know, and, and go elsewhere. And because a lot of times, you know, it becomes very insular if that's, you know, you can be the sort of guy on the beat and just make sure that that stays that way and, and nobody messes with your like, you know, your attitudes. 
but breaking out is like a super important part of that. And I think to look at what you guys started doing, because you started going to Europe um, and, and looking around the rest of the country, was that like an influence of clunes? Like what, or was it just natural to be like, all right, we've, we've set our mark here. Let's get, get going. But it seems of the, of that crew we're talking about, you know, you were the guy that really decided to do it. Well, I was probably, you know, of me, Jordan, now is probably the most like all in, mm-hmm. you know, I was right. like, um, like, I'm just going to climb. That's what I'm doing. This is, I was, there's no thought of like career education. I was, I was done with school. I don't care. I'm done with that. You know, my family was like, are you crazy? Like you, you're either going to be a doctor or a lawyer, like take your pick. No problem. And I was like, <laughs> you know, I'm, you're free to do one of those. Two exactly. Things. <laughs> you're going to have a real career, like, you know, and that's what you're going to do. And I just, you know, for whatever reason was like, I just wasn't even thinking about it literally. And I like, didn't know how I was going to make money or make a living. I was like, I'm just going to climb. I don't know how, but that's all I'm going to do. So yeah, the clume was definitely an influence on, by travel and getting out. The weather was the other big influence. Like <laughs> I need to get out of here because this place is terrible. You know, one of our first trips during the winter, we went to Joshua Tree, you know, and that was me, Jordan, Al driving to Joshua Tree, you know, 50 hours nonstop. Then we shut the car off, you know, and then we spent the whole winter break there. Our first trip to Joshua Tree, you know, that's when we did stuff like Equinox and Acid Crack and, you know, lots of classic routes in Joshua Tree. And it was our first real trip, like out of the gunks together and kind of realizing one, there's places with really good weather. <laughs> and two, like a whole nother world, those people with different ethics. And we kind of bumped up against Backer and those guys. And, you know, wow. And yeah, it was interesting because they were, the whole thing there was top roping. And we're like, why don't you leave this thing? Like, it's totally fine. Like, it takes gear. And because we're gunkies, like, it takes fine. You just put some small nuts in, it's totally good. So that was our first kind of trip out of the gunks, really. And then, well, yeah. let me stop here. It must yeah. have been really interesting, too for you to be able to go out there and, you know, at that time, like, you know, things like Equinox and those things are, are storied test pieces. And so I imagine for you guys to roll up and do them was probably like, Oh, wait a second. Like we're, we're good climbers elsewhere. Like, yeah, this does open up the world, you know, to us. I mean, was there that kind of attitude of like, Hey, we got, we can climb. Yeah, it was kind of interesting, actually. I remember when you're or were you, you guys are probably like, we already know. No, we didn't know. We didn't know where we stood in the right. mix, you know? And like I said, we thought, well, we did Kansas City. I did Gravity's Rainbow. And, you know, those are my 512s I've done at that point or whatever there was or um, stuff like that. So I remember when I did Equinox, I remember like I I almost onsighted. I was like at the top mm-hmm. and I was like surprised myself and I kind of like was bumbling, placing a nut. And fell off. And then I was like, why did I even fall there? I'm so stupid. The weight of Equinox made you fall. Basically. Yeah, you're on then, Equinox. You don't just fire I, and That's equinox what I was doing. I was like, totally. whoa, I'm all at the top. This is not right. What am I doing up here? And then I came down. <laughs> and then I, like, you know, I probably waited a half an hour. I went back up and just did it. Yeah. And I was, like, mm-hmm. I was like, this is not that bad. And then we were like, you know, what else is there? And the guy said, whoever we met in the campground, I forget their names. But like, you guys should go check it. Ask crack. That's. You know, that hasn't been led. So we walked up there and that's, and we did ask crack same way. Um, like, look, there's gear. This is fine. And try that. And we did that too. Huh? Yeah. Or I did actually. Yeah. Look at Jordan and Al didn't do it. They were, their fingers were getting chewed up. Right. You know, and I think 
partly scan, like it just suited me. Yeah. Like I, my fingers were not getting chewed up. And those guys, both that trip, both got gobies. And you know, once you get it, that's it. Like, right. They just keep getting ripped open. Yeah. I remember that was the topic of that trip. Like they just had these couple bad gobies and never got better. Right. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. The history, history, uh, like, you know, I could be sitting here talking to Jordan and we wouldn't know who Scott Franklin was if he had not gotten those gobies. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> and like, you had. Yeah, exactly. No, that's the thing. And it was like. It all pivoted on these gobies. It's the really universe, did. The universe hinged on. And on those, those cracks are like, you always put your finger in the same way right. and it's going to rip there. Yeah. And, it, and it was like a real pain because like you can't really tape because then you couldn't get your finger in there. And it was a bummer, but we still had an amazing time and it was such a fun trip. That first trip, you know, all the pallet fires and, you know, just staying in the dirt for three weeks, you know, just, it was awesome. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it sort of launched a part of your brain into it, the future. It did. Yeah. yeah. There was like, that was the beginning of, I, at that point we went back to school after that for the spring semester, but that was the beginning of the end. That mm -hmm. was like, that was <laughs> School was kind of dwindling pretty fast. I love fast. the beginning of the end. Yeah, it really was. That was like, I was much less interested in the spring. Let's uh -huh. put it that way. Right. Yeah. After we went to Joshua the first winter, that next summer when school ended, we went to Yosemite for the first trip together. And which is so funny to think about in context of like how Yosemite is today. I remember Jordan and I, we, we slept in our car in Camp Ford parking lot. Mm -hmm. with the bong on the dashboard and what we would do for food is we'd buy like a can of corned beef hash and some eggs and we'd like cook right in front of the car in our little stove corned beef hash and eggs mm -hmm. and just smoking weed right in the parking lot and camp four and sleeping in the front seat of the car mm -hmm. and now you know that wouldn't be a thing no it's not a thing anymore. it's not a thing so yeah. this is like mid 80s yeah that must have been 1980 i want to say 84 okay um and that was our first trip to the valley. Um, and it's a funny time because like Jordan's, when he, we went to the valley, Jordan, all he wanted to do was midnight lightning because he was a boulder. He's super strong. And, and all I want to do was like El Cap. I wanted to climb long routes, free routes. I wasn't really interested in any climbing at all. Mm -hmm. And so I was just trying to find, you know, either get Jordan to do routes with me or Al. Al was really psyched on doing more like one pitch, you know, trad routes. We're all, we're all of course, trad. Um, I remember funny, more on the funny kind of climbs I did on that trip was, um, met this guy because Jordan wasn't psyched to do the West face. I really wanted to do the West face. And this guy we called up calling super Dave from Colorado met us and said, Hey, when do you guys want to do the West face with me? No, remember like been climbing for like a year and a half from the gunks, never been on anything long. Um, the guy didn't know us at all. He was probably 18 years old. And he said, you want to go do this with me? I'm like, yeah, of course. No problem. Now, I had never climbed anything remotely like it. And um, he took me up. We said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to bivy at the base and we'll climb the first two pitches. And then the next morning, we'll, I forget what we did. No, we climb the first, I forget what we did. We slept, no, right. we didn't climb the first two pitches. We just slept there that night. Because there's a little, kind of a bit of a hike up to it, mm -hmm. it seemed like. And then we slept there. We left our sleeping bags at the base and we climbed the route in a day from there. And you remember, it, you know, it took all day and then we wrapped down. By the time we were wrapping down, it was dark. Um, got the rope stuck on the rappels. We just left the rope and hiked all the way down to the bottom. And 
It was the biggest day I'd ever had. It was the most amazing single climbing day ever. I guess more it's in hindsight, thinking how crazy it is that this guy grabbed me to do this route with him. And, you know, I would never, ever go pick some random kid up in a parking right, lot right. and go on a route like that yeah. today. Yeah. Totally. Ever. Yeah. <laughs> but luckily it worked out. Right. You know, and it's funny because, it, you know, I, I think the mindset was so much like, well, he says we can do it and should be fine to do it all free. We did. I did the whole thing, flashed the whole route, no problem. And it was, you know, it was a big day, but it wasn't like the limit. And I just remember being so inspired by the whole thing. And, mm -hmm. you know, then the rope suck was an epic. And then the next day he said, okay, you go hike up. I'll go get the sleeping bags. You hike up and get the ropes. And he told me, okay, you hike back up that gully and get it. And I was such a kind of a bumbler. I couldn't even find the rope. I couldn't even find the East Ledges. I didn't even know how we hiked up. Right. So he had to go back and find the rope too because I couldn't even find it. But you know, the climbing part worked out fine. Right. So right. it's just kind of funny because um, you know, when I think about that perspective, so that must have been 1984. And again, like I did that same route since then probably three or four times. I love it. It's, you know, I've done it with my wife. Um, I've done it with Steve Schneider. Um, and then I did it with my son a few years ago. And especially doing it more recently, thinking it's kind of a big, long day, you know, mm -hmm. and there's some, you know, involved slab climbing. Of course, you know, it's more intense when you're old and worried about taking giant falls and, you know, then when you're 18, you don't care. Oh, yeah. Um, totally. <laughs> you don't care. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just kind of funny just talking about it now, just thinking about that difference in time and perspective. Right. And then, you you know, that 84, 85, whenever it happened to be. Um, so that would have been post Todd and Paul doing um, the Salathe. No, they did no. that after. Oh, they it, did. It was after, yeah. God, that it, must have been like. Oh, 86. it was eighty-seven. Yeah, yeah eighty-six, eighty-seven. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. that's right. Yeah. I was thinking it had. I had eighty-two in my mind, um, but it was post Tudon and and uh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. So it was in this again, like this this era of like people looking up there and and thinking about freeing all those the you know the bigger roots on el cap but not quite not quite kicking the door open yet yeah exactly and like even which is know, again why the 80s are so cool like, it is it's a <laughs> it is a cool time and i think it is a it was a weird time in that we were going to stand between like the real pioneers like mark you know and max were to me those were like my heroes when i was reading climb magazine about you know free as can be and stuff like that thinking those guys are super cool they're really going for it and then the you know coming up with Todd and Paul going to South Bay and, but realizing those could go, you're yeah. on those walls, you're looking around, you're like, there's cracks all the way up here. There's like, there's holes, right. like these things will go. Right. You could see it. And, um, it's just an interesting time. I'm kind of curious about the European trips as well, because it, again, in this, this era for a lot of climbers, Russ included, you know, some of the storied trips, you know, he went over those competitions. Yeah, and, exactly. But a lot of people from this era went over to Europe and then came back with like new ideas. So can you talk a little bit about that? Like um, what, what you guys did and, and uh, what drove you to go there and like how, how your sort of attitudes might have been like a little bit changed when you came back? Yeah, and I, I'm trying to remember. The, I'm super vague on the exact sequence and timeline. But That's okay. We can jump some, around. Somewhere in that. So we went to Joshua Tree. That's that winter season. And I feel like in the spring – I'm trying to remember exactly when we, Russ Clune, I, I did Survival of the Fittest somewhere in there. I think that was like 
um, I forget exactly what year it was. Mm -hmm. Um, and then Russ did Thunderdome, which was kind of happening around the same time. I want to say a little bit after. And then the big spark was Patrick Elanger came to the gunks. Okay. That was like a bomb landing. That's when that, oh, sorry. That's our coffee maker. Cleaning itself out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the robot when Patrick came, for us. <laughs> I was already, like I said, like 99% done with school. Like I was, my mind was like all climbing all the time. We met Patrick and it was like a nuclear reaction. Like I just realized, okay, this, I'm a hundred percent doing this. And that was it. Um, Patrick came to gunks and proceeded just like, you know, hike everything. Like no problem. I'd never placed gear before. Remember he walked up to Thunderdome, which we thought was a super test piece and, you know, a little bit dangerous, you know, kind of low to the ground, bouldery kind of hard gear he like just cruises up at like no problem gets past the crux runs he doesn't have the right gear we throw him up a nut you know 25 feet you know gunks toss up grabs it places the nut finishes it super <laughs> casual and i was like Très bon. oh my <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly and that was that you know and at that time i had another project right next to gravity's rainbow that we were calling called bad boys because we were trying to do a new route there it was also really bad gear like terrible um and i was trying and taking these really big falls and patrick saw us on it it was like basically what are you doing like you keep taking this fall up there kind of horrendous fall onto rps and you know massive whipper it was like you should try that move learn how to do the move and then when you get there you can do it to the top and so we're like, all right, you mean like put up a top rope and like try it on top? He's like, yeah, top rope up and you can figure it out. <laughs> and so we put a top rope. He just hiked up it. And then I did too. We right. put the top rope and I, I hiked it. It was like this move I couldn't get past. I just didn't like, no problem. And I didn't take the top. And then, then eventually let it, of course. And that was like the beginning of like realizing, God, instead of like getting to the crux of something, taking a big fall and not being able to figure out the moves, like mm-hmm. just work the move out. And that it was like also a big eye opening and really made us think about ethics, right? Because it wasn't like we were saying, I'm going to free solo roots. And if I fall off, I die. Mm-hmm. We weren't quite there. We were using ropes. We we're using gear, right? We were playing the kendo game, right? We weren't full samurais <laughs> and we were using the ropes, but we just in a really stupid way. We could use the gear. We could lower down. And our, our way of trying, it was just super inefficient. Right. We're doing the same thing, but just very slow and inefficient. And it, it really, I realized, wait a minute, we're doing the same thing as he's doing, except we're just doing it stupidly. <laughs> you know, yeah, it totally. really doesn't make any sense. Right. Like, why are we doing this? Yeah. And the ethic, I realized, like, I saw how the ethic kind of developed. And I, I still am a huge fan of the on-site, uh, ground-up approach. It's the most impressive thing there is. Mm-hmm. But if you're not doing that and you're using gear, you're going to hang on the gear, then hang on the gear. Right. Hold me here. Don't lower me. Just hold me here and I will try it from here to the top. Right. And it was a big turning point for us. You know, I remember Jordan was the one who was like, he was on board way before me. He was like, we're doing this. I'm like, no, no, Jordan, we have to like still do the yeah. scary, slow, stupid ways. No, no, this, this is the way to do it for sure. He was a major <laughs> boulder. That's slow stupid way yeah we i must was, do the slow, we must stupid, do the slow way. stupid way and the scary way and jordan was all about the moves jordan was like a really strong right. boulder and he could always do you know 
any hard move, like no problem. And I remember it was like a big uh, moment because you know, I had done Gravity's Rainbow the old, slow, stupid way, and Jordan wanted to do it. And he it was the first time that we had this interaction. He was like, hey, hold me here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to. I was like, no, you got to lower him. And he's like, no, fucking hold me here. I'm like, no, lower him. And we had this big fight about it. And, and then that was like, it was the beginning for me of like realizing he's right and we should do this. And then somewhere in there, we started doing that, you know, right. and it was after um, that whole season. And I think that that next summer is our first trip to France. Right. So Jordan and I went to France. I don't remember why Al didn't come. He be at work or something. But we went to France for the first time. And yeah, that was the- Where'd you go? Like Bukes and- so yeah. I mean, it must have been. Right? We split that up the, because we, Jordan went with his girlfriend, and I went with another friend from who we climbed with um, from the Gunks. And Jordan and his girlfriend went to Bukes. Okay. And my, myself and Todd went to the Verdun. Oh, okay. And when I got to the Verdun, you know, we got there. I don't know how we hitchhiked. We took a train, hitchhiked to the to the camping in La Palude. We got set up. We woke up in the morning, and I thought I was like, "This is heaven." This actually probably is heaven, but I didn't know yet until the next day we got, when we got up to the crag. So we got up to the crag, you hitchhiked from the town up mm -hmm. to the crag and we look out in the valley and was blown away and see people like top roping off the railings and, you know, lowering down and just was completely blown away. Yeah. That was completely eye opening and truly like life changing moment for me. Yeah. It's, it's awesome. The, 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 the Patrick encounter, it just like, to me, I, that just like got me, gave me goosebumps because, I mean, he's an interesting character in terms of like what Americans know about him, but like the guy was a world mover in climbing, Absolutely. like an absolute world mover. Absolutely. And so charismatic that I, I mean, I just imagine like the magnetism of like what he swept into the gunks those days and like how you guys were just like holy crap never seen anything like it yeah yeah nothing like because it. aside from his climbing ability he's just was like this compelling yeah he was a superstar character. i mean yeah. he was like really he was a star you he was know? like david lee roth or something like kind of <laughs> yeah yeah no less he, flamboyant he he had the personality but he was like you know he was sort of the embodiment of all the things that i was kind of feeling too and like getting mm -hmm. into like Mm -hmm. I was a climber at that point. Right. I'd already made the commitment. Right. I was like, I'm not looking back. And then I met him. Like, was, oh my God, there are guys that do this. He is doing that. And he's got this beautiful girlfriend and he's got like, he's professional. He's traveling around doing this. This is what he does is his mm -hmm. job. Yeah. And you've watched him climb. And he's like, gorgeous. And he's an amazing <laughs> climber. Yeah. You know, I was, I've never right. seen anything like it. Right. And it was like next level, you know, mm -hmm. really it was like an alien landed. And um, and then going to France and going to Verdun and then meeting, you know, European climbers and kids in like the campground and just hooking up with Spanish climbers and French and everybody and going to the crack and trying routes and like, yeah, hold me here. I'm right, going to do right. this move and then work it. And, and then red point and then do those routes. And I just was, I know it was, it was truly happening. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting because, um, you know, this like crucible that you guys met, where you're hanging on the rope and like trying to do the moves this again, the eighties, this is happening to all sorts of climbers where they're like, they're doing these mental gymnastics to like exactly. both, both justify the old way is takes all these mental gymnastics of yeah. like, 
and then to just to get to the new way like you're like this is dumb we're using gear you know yeah it, it's like i don't know i i find it's like the uh you know you've ha- you have to go through this like period of like mental anguish and then like go ding like oh this is how this works but going to the verdon because I, it's i also agree that it's like this heaven place and uh then you see like what it was just mechanics it was just logistics like yeah we have to go down from the top already to do these routes right a lot of them don't even go to the bottom of the candy most of them don't yeah so why would we you know, what are you gonna do right pull it, the it, rope and like climb up and like there doesn't make any what? sense then right? you're stuck you're stuck you yeah. like, there's only yeah. bolts and right. the bolts are like 30 feet apart right and, like, and so it's like you just realize it wasn't you know it's been it's always been set up as like you know this kind of like the euros were were you know wimpier than the british because it, it was a big like yeah, yeah across exactly. the channel thing and you re- two things happen first of all you realize it was just logistics this is how it had to be done yeah and then you go and like you know this oh yeah this the sport wankers over there in france then you try to lead one of patrick's bolted routes and you're just like this is you're fucking, fucking terrifying. terrifying yeah you're terrifying <laughs> you're like i am 25 feet above right. the bolt and now the hard move right because and then after the hard move is where the next bolt is exactly <laughs> yes after you've done it because that's then you can could, clip yeah then yeah. that's yeah totally. and no exactly <laughs> that first experience when you're like i am completely terrified super yeah. run out and taking giant falls you know, into the Verdun. Yeah. And you realize there's not a problem of like boldness. You know, these right. are bigger falls than you'd ever taken the gunks. Right. Um, and yeah, so that, and I think very quickly, the whole European mindset leveled out. You know, the whole mm-hmm. British, you know, attitude towards the French, that, that all, you know, through the next few years there, that, that quickly leveled out. Well, because they all had the same. Same thing. They're all a bunch of wankers from, you know, the French and they're a bunch of wimps. And then they went and over there and they're just like, holy shit, these guys good. are good. And they're good and this is fun. <laughs> and it's super fun. And, and it's, some of them are really bold and scary. Right. You know, yeah. and um, yeah, it's, I think there's a lot of respect. I think people realize, and I think Patrick, Patrick Barreau, um, you know, who is less known outside of France, but, you know, equally, if not more talented than Patrick at Langer and some of the other routes that they, they were doing at the time were really way ahead of their time. And um, I think that's sort of like the general, you know, you're talking about the 80s, you know, one of the big sort of strange things, I guess, you know, when you look back on time is some of the things that were done then seem way ahead of their time. Yeah. Because there was a general sense of dissatisfaction. You know, we were all like, oh, that's not that hard. It can't be that hard. I just did it. Right. And, but they were trying hard and like really focused. And now you look at those routes like, oh, that was, that was actually hard. But I think the, the weirdest thing about that time was when I think back, you know, again, from this, you know, many, many years ago, because it is a long time ago, how I felt like we were kind of sad. Well, I want to think back about it. I feel like we were sort of sandwiched in this feeling of like the Europeans and Patrick and that whole group of, especially at that time, French climbers were so strong and so good and feeling like we just felt so lame. You know, right. looking at the average level of American climbers, like we were really not very good. Just you're great climbers, of course, but nothing like the Europeans are way better. Right. They're climbing rings around us. Well, let's take it to Ron Fawcett, you know, the guys like that. Too. Oh, yeah. 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 Doing really scary routes. And, you know, so I think the two things that they had going for them, one was climbing on limestone was the biggest revelation that like that makes you a better free climber. Mm-hmm. You learn way more variety of solutions. You're stronger, better route finding, 
just better skills, mm-hmm. better footwork, mm-hmm. just better climbers. Um, climbing on granite is is great, and it's a great way to learn, but it's a very specific style. And certainly for free climbing, it's sort of limiting, mm-hmm. and you can't get very strong on it. Um, you can certainly do very hard routes on granite, but to get strong, I think climbing on limestone was a lot better medium. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more interesting and fun, too, I think. Well, the other thing is the ethics, because yeah. you, you talked about like you know these things where you're just lobbing off of them. And when you throw a top rope on it and it feels easy, then you, that's absolute evidence that it was a mental barrier. Exactly. It was not a physical barrier. Exactly. And, you know, that's my kind of line. It's like track climbing sort of substitutes scary for hard and not always, but it's like, it can. Yeah. And it can. So, and you know, the U S climbing scene at that point, you know, you're right on the cusp of sport climbing and things like that. You know, it was, it was getting, having to get like pulled out of that in a lot harder way than, than the Europeans, I think. But the thing that's interesting that I want to talk about is that you, you know, you have this realization like, yeah, you guys are great climbers, but you guys don't even know like what great climbers actually exactly. look like. But then you actually go about sort of like, I mean, I don't know if it was a specific mission, but then your next kind of step in some of your career, climbing career, climbing motivation, you become the guy that starts to fix that in a lot of ways. I mean, you're, let's talk if we want to skip to that or, or move to it through discussion, but you know, your, your Smith rock era becomes like, oh, here's an American who's going to start, you know, pushing right up against JB, right? Yeah. Well, it's funny you put it like that because I think, you know, like, again, I was so in it at that time. All I was like, I'm just going to climb and I want to be the best climber I can be. Mm-hmm. And after the first trip to France, and I were like, I'm doing this. Like, this is what I'm doing. This is how I'm going to climb. And I want to get better. You know, I want to learn how to climb as well as I can. So that was totally my attitude. And then when I came back, actually, I remember that that was actually a really interesting time. I From that first trip in France, um, I came back to New Paltz to the apartment I had with Jordan. And we had this other roommate um, who wasn't a climber. And I was broke, like literally broke, like zero dollars, nothing not one penny. I spent every dollar. I made it back. That was it. And I got to the house and I remember thinking like, I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do. Like I got no money. I don't have a job, um, but I, I want to climb. And we were in the apartment just being our typical derelict selves. And um, I get a phone call from John Bouchard. And <laughs> you know, this guy gets on the phone. Hi, I'm John Bouchard. I've got a company called Wild Things. I'm like, Okay, I've heard of wild things. I've seen like their equipment or whatever, chuck bags. And he said, So I want to sponsor you. And here's what I'm going to do I'm going to give you a monthly stipend. I'm going to give you a van. I'm going to pay for health insurance. And you can just go on the road and go climbing. And um, I'm going to drive down to the gunks next week with this van. And I'm going to get you going. Get You're like, Who is this really? Yeah. Which guy? Who is this? Ha ha. Yeah. <laughs> so it was really like the most my and I remember Jordan in the hang out the phone like he's like who's that I'm like that was John Bouchard he's gonna come down and give me a van and I'm gonna be a sponsored climber and and that was like the most hilarious and insane serendipity you know it was like um I always think of it as sort of like that empty-handed leap into the void well I took the leap and then somehow you know People can't see me right now because it's a fucking podcast, yeah. but I'm like laughing and yeah. smiling before you finish that story because I knew 
I know what the story was. Okay. And in my biopic of this, my my movie, we've got you like, you know, sad music. Right. Exactly. You know, like, you know, smoke. scraping the bong. Right. Like, scraping like, the like, bong. <laughs> like, or walking down the alley, like kicking empty cans. Exactly. Like smoking a tiny spleef. Yeah. That you like dug out of like. Some, and then the, and then the actual, instead of the phone call, the actual van comes screeching up because I, I, I know what the vans look like. Exactly. I've seen pictures of it. Yeah. yeah. The, the freaking wild things. I mean, it wasn't just you. There was like a crew. Jimmy Surratt. Yeah. Um, Mark Twight. Twight. Yeah. I've seen and the picture. Yeah. yeah. So, so that's in the biopic. The yeah, band yeah. just comes up and beeps the horn. Jump in. And you, and you just <laughs> exactly. jump in. And- Lots of gear and sleeping bags. Everything's like money, you know, exact food, all the things you need. Yeah. Exactly. But it's so cool because that guy was like, I mean, that didn't exist. It didn't exist. It, didn't it exist. wasn't even a thing. In the States anyway. Yeah. yeah. But then it was, yeah. you know, and- I remember just like laughing, like, okay, well, so that's what we're doing. I'm going to go climb here for the little, I forget exactly the timing of the year. You're like, can you call in a pizza for me right now? <laughs> exactly. Because You're so- I don't know if I can last till the van gets here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and it happened. I mean, he literally came and brought the van to the gunks right. and I met him and, you know, he is an amazing guy and became a great friend and um, also a, a real mentor. And, um, but that, that, that really opened up the opportunity because, um, he's like, you know, I was like, why do you want to do this? Like, how do you even know me? Like, I never even met you before. He's like, no, I've been, I've been hearing about you. I've been following you. You're climbing and I know what you're doing and I want to support you and you're going to go do rad things. I was like, here's the van, here's some money, go, just go climb hard. Right. And so now I had this van and I could go travel and I was like, well, I'm definitely not going to stay here. That's for sure. And, you know, Smith Rock was like the logical place to go, partly because we knew it was like sport climbing and it was a really happening place. But I forget the magazine at the time. It was, uh, I think it was called Mountain Magazine. It just had like a number on it, you know, like a really great image, like full bleed image and just had a number, which issue it was. And there's a picture of Alan Watts on Chain Reaction. And blue sky, you know, chain reaction just lit up. And I remember thinking, I need to go there. I need to do that route. I, I have to do this. Mm-hmm. And once I had the van, like I'm driving out there and that's what we're going to do. Ended up driving to Smith Rock. And that was another major, you know, mind, you know, altering experience. Absolutely. And uh, getting there. And I remember being there for the first few nights, you know, the smell is so unique. If anybody's ever been to Smith Rock, you know, the sage and juniper and camping there in the spring. And it was waking up in the blue sky. And I remember thinking, oh my God, this is in America. And the weather is amazing. Look at all this rock and this kind of climbing and just falling in love with the place. And then getting to meet everybody. And, you know, that whole sequence was, it was really incredible. At that time I was with um, my girlfriend at the time was Cathy, it's a French girl. It's a different story. You know, I met back in the Verdun. So anyway, I got to Smith, and at that time, you know, Smith was really kind of like Alan Watts, of course, was the, you know, really the pioneer and had done all the roots at that time. You know, he had done Chain Reaction, done Split Image, was working on these Face the Monkey Face. All things were in that magazine article by Hans Zach, and, and I was just I, I was like, I got to go there. Got to meet this guy. I got to see the place. And um, so, yeah, went there and just started doing the roots, you know? did heinous clang and did, I forget exactly the sequence of roots, you know, work through it. And then um, I was with Jimmy Surratt actually at the time. And 
there's a, there was also a couple of Brits. Martin Atkinson was there, and um, so everybody's like trying to you know do the roots, latest rage, and uh, Watts Tot stuff like that. And I remember Jimmy tried Chin Reaction first, so I bladed him and I watched him. It wasn't. It was kind of like in the beginning of the onsite climbing, and I at the time I didn't really have any aspirations of on-siting chain reaction. I didn't even think about that really because it seemed like way next level. But I remember blaying Jimmy on it and he worked it out. And, you know, it took a couple tries. I don't think he, I don't remember if he did it that time or not, but I remember blaying on it and kind of watched the sequence. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to give it a try. And I knew I wanted to flash it because I was like, I was Jones and do the root ever since I saw the picture. And I did flash it. And I remember being like, still to this day, like so psyched to do this route to me was like the iconic sport route. I couldn't imagine anything cooler, you know, this perfect splitter rat. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to Smith Rock. It's pretty dramatic. Um, it's a short route, but it's just super cool looking. I remember flashing and just being super psyched and just feeling like, you know, in love with Smith Rock and just the whole scene and being there. and. And then that afternoon, going down after that and meeting um, Brooke Sandal, who became one of my best friends and also major client partner, and meeting him that day. And you know, he was like, hey, who are you? Because you know, the cool Smith Rock guys. Who, who are you? I'm like, oh, I'm Scott from the Gunks. And you know, like, oh, yeah? You want a bong hit? You know? <laughs> and uh, what did you guys do today? This and that. And I said, yeah, I did Chain Reaction. And he's like, oh, cool. That's great. It's like, and... I don't know how it came out, but he's like, that I flashed it. And he was like, oh, cool. You know, like, like, yeah, of course, like, no, no problem. But he was super psyched. And I think we, we became really good friends then. And from there, we just, you know, went, um, I became a local like overnight. Right. Basically. Right. Even though I didn't stay there, but I was like, they clearly took me under their wing. Okay. Mm -hmm. you, you're okay. You can hang out here. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's cool. I mean, I, you know, I'll sort of like pay some compliments that might make you uncomfortable. But, you know, the fact is, is that like this is a, already the beginning of an era where there's, you know, there's plenty of climbers who get really good and they can go in and throw elbows and and like annoy and kind of stomp on a local scene or like. And, and, you know, we don't have to name any names, but there's, there's people out here for, for whom that was kind of their style is like a punk rock thing. Right. And, and I've, I, you know, looking at your history, admired that you, you seem to be able to come into these scenes and do the right thing to, to sort of gather that energy around you rather than like, like piss it off. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think so. And I think, um, yeah, maybe it's a personality thing, but I really felt like, um, you know, I met Brooke and then Chris Grover and, and Alan Watts, who really the crew there and Ken mm -hmm. Benish was involved and Sean Olmstead. There's like a crew of the Smith Rock locals, but they, I think they real they were like, yeah, this guy's cool. He, he can hang out with mm -hmm. us. You know, this guy from the gunks. Right. And they could tell I was like really into it. You know, yeah. they could really, and I think we had this really mutual respect, for like really trying to climb well mm -hmm. and really be into that, the art of it, you know? And I just felt like we really had um, just met like kindred spirits. You mm -hmm. know, like we were, we were a crew for sure. Mm -hmm. And I felt it was nice to be kind of welcomed with them too. And so, yeah, it was not so much combative for sure. I was really 
uh, super respectful. I was well, yeah, because I mean, I, you know, it's like there are other there's other little hotspots that maybe not quite as early as as uh, as Smith Rock, but you know, sport climbing is coming in. Yeah. It's, it's in some places it's being pushed against really hard. So that so a lot of people early sport climbing scenes, whether it's Salt Lake City or whether it's over in Rifle, you know, they kind of like are pushed into adopting this like attitude of like, fuck you, we're going to do this anyway. And, yeah. and, and so, and I feel like, you know, somehow Alan and I, I haven't ever had him on the show and I'd love to, but he seemed to somehow like, he just was doing his own thing. And I think maybe because Smith was so like, out in the middle of nowhere exactly. kind of off thing. the beaten like, path yeah, right the there wasn't path. a scene yeah, there he yeah. was the scene and yeah. yeah and i could really relate to alan in that way too because he's just like head down it's like right. i'm just gonna he was he developed his own ethic because it made sense right he wasn't just trying to follow like some paradigm or you know he wasn't kind of part of some ethic that was being developed by other locals he just right. developed it right and by just small you know by his own intelligence right mm-hmm. and um drive and and vision you could see like these things will be amazing and he didn't care by the way if anybody right. knew right it wasn't like i want people to watch me do these things right. he didn't nobody was there yeah there's nobody watching you know? yeah i think it's kind of interesting because it isn't there like a like an american zen writer alan watts as well exactly yes yeah. and yep. i've always i've always kind of like in my mind i sort of conflate the two and i don't know what kind of personality he has but i'm like I'm like, there's more than just like a coincidence there. <laughs> I, I I know what you're saying. I agree. I, I agree. I'm is like, it, are they the same person? But um, I don't know anything about Alan Watts. Never met he him. He is. Yeah. He is a Zen master, and he's a, he's a super cool guy. You know, I remember when I met him. You just you know love him, and and Grover too. You know, we just spent so many days in that park till dark. I mean, right. the thing was like, we would leave there. In the dark, you'd be coiling your rope up in the dark and walking out of dark, mm-hmm. and that was that's what we did every day. And um, you know, the thing that I I think where we felt like it was a we were such a crew, and um, where I felt such a good connection with them is there wasn't a sense of like we're doing this so people know that we're doing it. it didn't matter, right. like we were just doing it anyway. There was nobody there, right? You know, again, same thing. I think about Yosemite, but Smith Rock today is it's insane. Um, when we would be down there, there'd be literally nobody. There'd right. be the three or four of us there all day. And that's it. And now, I mean, there's not one single place with three or four people in it. Right. Yeah. And people are warming up on your hard roots. So, you know, just to like get the to get the the facts in and, and related to what I said about like you deciding and actually that whole crew, I think, was very inspired by this idea that the Europeans are 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 raging and, and we need to like catch up with them. If if not a conscious thought. But here we're going to adopt their tactics, and we're going to do this thing and, and see how it works. And then also, literally amongst you, you know, JB Trebeau shows up and yep. and puts up the hardest route in America, right yeah. there. You know, like that was definitely yeah. in your face, yeah. you know. And <laughs> and I think there was it was to bolt or not to be is what we're talking about. Yeah. yeah, and he so that first trip I did Smith was before GB came, mm. and and I remember just being inspired by the the crag and the people. And then I went away and back to France. I forget the exact sequence, what happened. But then Gbay came and did to Bolt. I remember Clune told me back in the gunks, because I hadn't really quit, quite committed to being living in Smith Rock and, and the van at that point. Clune said, oh, Gbay just did this new route. It's going to be the hardest route in America. And you got to go out there and do it. Clune's like, you need to go do that route. It's perfect for you. You can do it. 
And remember thinking, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go back out there in the fall. Cause I think we were in the spring, the first trip and I went back in the fall after GB did it and just started trying it. Um, but I, the, Definitely the the attitude, I think, in our crew at that point was the Europeans are way better than us and we need to like get on it because mm-hmm. they're making us look super lame. And and for the most part, Americans were pretty lame. You know? <laughs> they're just like fuddy duddy, old, frumpy ass climbers, you know? And the Europeans were like super fit, strong, better technique, more I don't and just they've just been almost every every way they were better climbers and you know so that was the attitude like we didn't need to catch up we right. need to get on the game here that was our attitude like right. we were way behind the curve right. and and what was the process of doing that route to like, bolt yeah it's definitely the hardest thing i ever tried i never tried anything probably quite that hard no for sure not um and then it became like you know, i started i think it, it took me like a whole month to do it i went there and I want to say I started trying it like middle October because I did it on Thanksgiving day. I do remember that. Right. That was like a big day because remember the day I did it, we went and had dinner with Chris Grover, Thanksgiving dinner. That was like, just happened to be Thanksgiving day. So I had started like the month before it took me a whole month to do it. It was the longest I ever spent on a route. And, um, it became like this big mental program because I was getting close to doing it. And the, the route is like kind of the first 10 bolts or like the hard business. And there's like a, the first little jug break. And when I remember feeling like if I got to the jugs, I'm going to do this route. Like I'm going to make it to the top. And there was this hard move somewhere. I forget seventh or eighth bolt that kept spitting me off real small technical stuff and foot would pop or whatever. And then I started realizing it's just a concentration issue. Like I am just, there became this mental barrier. Cause I realized that once I do this thing, I'm going to do it. And it, it became a big deal. And I'd be like, when are you going to do it? When are you doing this? Is like a big topic. And and it, it sort of become like my first big mental project. I realized, whoa, this is like a becoming a thing. And um, but then, yeah, Thanksgiving Day, it was really cold and terrible in the park. And I remember Jeff Ellington, also one of our best friends, um, was there, and I think he belayed me on it. It's like, okay, I'll just give it a try and see. You know, it's like terrible weather; it's super cold. I'll just give it a try, and then we'll be out here going to get dinner at Grover's house. And I did it. <laughs> and I was like, "Oh my god, yeah, I did it, yeah, yeah, it's classic. It was great, like the low, the low, uh, low sort expectations. of expectations, yeah, it's the best, yeah." And um, it was well, finally kind of got out of the mindset of like, "Oh, I'm going to do this." Well, it's and, interesting because, like, aside from the like invention of sport climbing and the bolt, right, and that's all we focus on. But then you guys are also like inventing red pointing, and, yeah, like this sort of like science of it. So here you are just a month, ooh, a whole month on a route. Yeah, like yeah. That's like not even, you know, that's nothing that, now. That was insane you know? to me though. Like yeah, the idea totally, is going to yeah. try this route like more than twice yeah. or three times. Yeah, you know? but then, and then you, you like right away ran into everything we know now easily about red pointing is that like you, you work up this move in your brain and then it yeah. gets harder before it gets easier. Exactly. Like, all the things, yeah, all the things like yeah. you were discovering. And it, it's funny because it's like, that's just so commonplace now. And it's like you guys, again, at yeah. least in the U S were literally discovering this, like, wait, this is really fucking challenging in yeah. this whole different way. Yeah. Like this whole different way. Yeah. You know? Learning the techniques. Yeah. You know, I didn't know at that time, you know, how do I, What's the? I keep falling here. What should I do? Should I go down and try it from three bolts below? Or right. well, we didn't know. And I was just like trying to find my way. I didn't know. I was yeah. like, 
why am I falling off here? Is it my shoes aren't good? Or, you know, just yeah. all the things. So yeah, it was really, it was really eye-opening because it was the first time I really spent time on a route like that. And then I had to take rest days because my fingers were getting trashed and I was like, I need to rest. You know? Yeah, it's like, funny. You're discovering rest days. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All those things, you know, like having to like really um, prepare and right. like think about the route. And like, remember like even probably, I probably had like drawn up the sequence because there were so many holes, so many moves on it. It's a long route. Mm-hmm. And having to really remember it all so I could really prepare. And, um, and then doing it was a big, it was a big change for me because um, I think that route you know, became a big topic, right? Everybody said, yeah. oh my God, first time Americans done, you know, we're, we're here. It was like the Americans are, we're in the game now. Right. We're not just the chumpy guys who are doing 5.11s, you know, trad 5.11s. We're actually getting in the mix with the right. Europeans. Right. And um, I think people saw that as like the beginning, it was a big opening, like we're, we're in the game now. But we were also spending so much energy and time arguing about bolts still, right? <laughs> And I remember, I think it was that same winter, they had the American Alpine Club meeting. I was invited to speak um, with the hangdog. I forget what it was called. The, I don't know. There was some like big debate, the great debate, they called it, yeah. about bolting or not. And it was like me and Alan on one side and Calc and Backer on the other. You know, it was a whole argument about why should we do sport climbing? Why bolting? And, you know, I was super brash and super irreverent and, um, you know, in my own world, for sure. My, my context was so limited, but also in some ways it was really kind of pure because I was just being honest about what I saw and remember being on the stage and I'd never spoken to a big public audience before and being on the stage and this, you know, people like Shannard and Robbins were there and, you know, everybody. Yeah. And they're asking me questions about, you know, why trad? And I remember saying something like, why do you even need gear on routes less than 510? Like, why do you even need to rope up? like what i i said it's like basically just some kind of like you know some kind of form of like mountaineering basically like you don't even need gear for that kind of you know climbing starts at 510 was my attitude like that's when rock climbing starts where you need gear you need to put ropes on and below 510 you don't even need it and that was when i said that in front of everybody they were like oh this big gasp goes in the whole room and you know i was like <laughs> and I was saying to like Backer and Calc, like you got the roots you guys are doing, it's not hard. So you don't, basically who cares? Like it just doesn't matter that you top rope that or that you let it, you know, after hanging on a hook and then you put a bolt in, you lower it back down, yo-yoed your weight. Like basically all things I'd be able to come to the realization of mm-hmm, that it was just mm-hmm. slow and stupid. Right. This basically was my message. And well, well received, I'm sure. It was super well received. There was like standing ovations. Like they all got up and like, this guy, this is like the prophet. No, that's when I think I was like truly dubbed like the public enemy. That's when they realized this guy's he's he's a he's a menace. This guy's a menace to society. So but I think they didn't know what to make of me, really. They're like, this guy's a little bit out of control, and they weren't sure what to think of me. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember that day though, after the whole thing happened, you know, that was the first time I ever met Backer in person right. th- at that event and his whole posse, you know, all these like SoCal dudes and we were hanging out, I don't know where in the hotel or something like that. And, you know, just hanging out and, you know, I was a total pothead. So we actually had something really in common. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so 
really, you know, I don't know what thing, you know, like, let's go hang out and smoke some weed. And, and, and we did. We'll hash this out. What's that? <laughs> we'll hash this out. We'll hash this out. But then Literally. <laughs> we realized, and that was really cool meeting Backer because we hit it off right away. And, you know, we right then and there became really good friends and, and with the whole crew, you know, other hardcore trad dudes, you know, Yosemite, J-Tree guys, they realized, I think they had respect for the fact that I was so committed to the, to the art of climbing. Like it sounded like this guy's serious. He's really into it. And that I was, I think they respected that I was um, also go for it. They didn't realize I was like a top rope dude. You know, I had soul survival already at that point, um, which I thought they thought was really cool and um, had led other scary routes. I think they thought it was called lead acid crack because they hadn't led it at that time. So we, they, I was accepted by them too. Well, that's, I, I was going to, I mean, you just got to it anyway, but I'll put an exclamation point on it is that's an important part of your career, which makes you a little different from like, you know, the Boone Speed and like in Salt Lake City and, and, uh, you know, some of the folks coming into rifle and is that you, yeah, you had this, like, I mean, you freaking you know, what, what was, uh, um, what's the name of the route, uh, the gunks route, the 13A that you pre-soloed? Survival of yeah, fittest. Survival yeah, survival of fittest. Yeah. So you, yeah, you've done these things that like, I mean, kind of was right in Backer's wheelhouse, if not even harder than, than what he was doing in a way, you know, so you had these guys respect and you couldn't, they, they, they couldn't just be like, oh, he's this little sport weenie that, exactly. that's scared all the time. And he puts bolts in cause he can't climb. Right. So no, it's like, true. yeah, I mean, it's like, you can't, you're, you're, you got some swagger. Like in the yeah. in the game, you know what I mean? Yeah, I don't know about swagger, but I think they could they could understand it. They could right. see that I was serious. Yeah, and I think that they, I think Acid Crack was those guys in particular. They understood what that meant. Mm-hmm. You know, they had never been to the gunk, so they didn't know about survival. But understanding soloing five thirteen, they thought was cool. Yeah, and they probably yeah, they, they probably heard about it from other people, but sure. they definitely knew about Acid Crack. Right. So yeah, I think that they they realized I wasn't just a, a bolting dude and just a boulder mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they knew, you know, we talked about Yosemite and that I had done lots of trad routes. And so I, yeah, I think that they, we could relate in another way. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that I love about climbing is there's so many different kinds of ways to approach it. Mm-hmm. And they, there's so much intersection about those different styles and the different geography too. Right. You know, Yosemite calls for one approach. Your Verdine calls for one approach. The Gunks is another one. So I think my interest has always been just in the, like the, the art of it all, right? They're all different versions. Alpine climbing, same thing. It's you, you can't use the same approach as you do in the Verdun as you can on, um, you know, in Patagonia. Right. Yeah. I mean, and the thing is, is that you your evolution was an evolution that a, a lot of those guys they ended up following it eventually. I mean, Calc did. And, yeah. I mean, you know, backer to a certain extent, he wasn't. He did. Yeah. He wasn't yeah. gonna. Yeah. So it's like, you know. It's like you actually, in this weird, I mean, not to like, you know, put you on a pedestal, but you're joking about how here's the prophet. It's like you, you, and not just you, but were the prophets. They, you guys were talking about the future and yeah. what you were talking about came to pass in a lot of ways for a lot of climbers. Some didn't, but the ones who stayed in the game and, and kept improving. And, yeah. you know, and then it's funny because then Backer and like Calc, they had to have their split in their years of, of like 
going a little bit different path and stuff too you know it's like and that's what i mean like this era was full of these moments where everybody had to like choose in a way right which is yeah. really, so weird and in some ways not unfortunate but there was so much enmity and yeah and really wasted energy fighting about shit that just didn't even matter mm -hmm. you know and that was always my point is like look if you just sort of break this thing down this is where it's going to go and our our the position was like sport climbing is it's a thing it's going to happen you're already going to the top you can already mm -hmm. get around to the back of the crag it's not like you're trying to get to the summit of this peak right the the natural intellectual evolution of it it makes sense we're already using gear but let's do this let's skip all the gymnastics we're, we're putting on ourselves and just go right to the right the mm -hmm. essence of it mm -hmm. and focus on and then you know i use the analogy of kendo before because that's how i always thought of it is like soloing is using samurai swords right you're playing to keep like if you fail you die or could or or something grave kendo like you're going to get a smack on the head but you get to try again and rock climbing with ropes and gear is kendo you know and to me the the trad versus sport is more a question of geography like in Yosemite, you use track climbing because you can't actually replace the gear, right. right? But in rifle, it doesn't make sense. So you use the right tools, but that's the kendo approach. And and I think then you want to perfect the art. You want to learn how to, you know, move correctly and and approach it with the right energy, like and commitment and follow through, and you know, really climb well. And the other stuff is just noise. Mm -hmm. Whether you went to the third friend or bolt and lower down or hung there and worked it out that's just games we're all playing but at the end mm -hmm. of the day the essence is still did you climb it correctly you know right. with intention and commitment so anyway i think it, it, all that was to say is like realize right away this is where it's going to go and once we could see the future was what it is today right for better or worse i mean when i look at the crag you go to a rifle today and it's just packed with kids you know end to end and it's the downside of it. It is accessible. That's the other side of sport climbing. Right. It's super accessible. It's not the level of commitment required and training and skill and um, are way lower. It's way easier to get into. So it's a mixed blessing. Yeah. There was like a much more definitive choice that automatically involved risk taking to become a rock climber pre-1990. Exactly. And it, and it was like, I am going to accept that part of this is also pursuing risk unless you were just like a straight boulder, but they hardly existed. Right. Even, even bouldering was fucking risky because no one used pads. So right. And they're yeah. doing tall problems without <laughs> right. pads. Right. You know, right. today would be like unheard yeah. of. Right. So no, yeah, so it's, it, it is, you know, there is that evolution, which is, and it's kind of interesting because that wasn't, I think that was like in the back of the mind of all the anti bolters, but it's also this like, kind of detestable elitism too so it's a mixed bag you know like i started climbing right then i okay. started climbing 1989 okay and i was in the front range and so i was in boulder within a couple of years and i wasn't involved in it because i was a gumby but i knew about the bolt wars and that was you know 91 92 that was the height of the local bolt wars here it's such insanity and i had that foot in the old world because i was like you know like literally like wool in right. wool climbing in wool right and like and so like i i didn't have like a crucible evolution because i wasn't involved but i was like 
evolving with it as well, you know, in terms of like, I stayed away from sport climbing for a really long time. It's, it was so weird that we, I think American climbing was held back for so long by our own sort of constructs, you know, mm -hmm. that we put out there, but you know, here we are now. Right. Yeah. And now you fast forward and, and all that sort of water on the bridge. It, it really is just a, a cycle that we've kind of gone through. But, you know, I think back some of the arguments and, and, you know, we used to have with people at the crags and about stuff like this, like, mm -hmm. what are we even talking about? Yeah. Like nobody actually cares either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, I just think like at our age, thank God for sport climbing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, now we can actually go out and climb enough fun, but yeah, it's, it's like, thank God I don't have to just like go risk my life every time I go climbing. I wouldn't be climbing. I don't think I would. I, I mean, I, I do dabble in that still because I have those roots, but yeah. I wouldn't be an avid climber without sport It takes climbing. more time and energy it's, yeah, and it's, and it's, it's like, like changes what you can do every yeah, day, totally. you know? And uh, yeah, I think it's, it was definitely an interesting time. And I think um, the, I think, you know, that thing you brought up is the most interesting difference is like when I started climbing, risk was a hundred percent part of it. Mm -hmm. That was, that's part of the, the calculus well, of climbing. The, it was the, it was the, draw i mean it was the it, definitely you yeah. climb because you want to have adventure yeah and climbing today is not about adventure sport climbing is not about adventure it's about climbing it's mm -hmm. a physical activity mm -hmm. there's it's a sport and you know that was like the old john sherman thing like sport climbing is neither it was such a great line and i think i don't agree i think it is a sport yeah um sport climbing is a sport but it's not climbing you know in air quotes right Climbing in the adventure sense of climbing is a very different thing. Mm -hmm. And what kids are doing to prepare for the Olympics and, and the, you know, you watch some of like the insane gymnastic, you know, running, jumping, like game show, it looks like Japanese game show stuff they're doing in the Olympics now. It's funny that that's climbing, right. you know, that's, it's a very different thing. Yeah, for um, sure. So. Well, well, let's um, finish your evolution because we've been at this for a long time and I appreciate the time you're, you're giving me. Um, or giving us actually, um, and I and I knew about this reputation because so this is all happening as I start climbing. So I'm reading the magazines and seeing all this stuff and seeing Jim Carn and you and um, you know Boone Speeds in the mix is somewhere in the right. early '90s, and it, it's just like so radical and like the the lycra and all the business. Right. So I'm there watching this, and I knew that like there was sort of this bad boy attitude and like these guys are a little bit dangerous and you know and and very like punk rock if not literally at least that attitude and and when i say punk rock i'm talking about like anti-establishment because you were anti-establishment for sure yeah for sure and so there you are but then there's an evolution first of all you start just going around the country and doing fucking hard routes all over the place <laughs> right. which is something again i totally respect because you know, and I think part of the Southern California problem is that, like, right, I agree. Those guys like just they stayed leave. in their yeah. lane, yeah, and it's exactly. still the, it's still the case. Yeah, but um, and so I I'm like, okay, so that's a little bit risky to go out to these other areas, adopt the local ethic, and and that's different from maybe what you were doing in, in this other place. But understanding that I can't, I'm gonna roll in here and I'm gonna do it the way it's supposed to be done, and still achieve, you know, these these ascents that you were achieving around. Was that a statement in terms of like doing that, like going places and, and, and kind of like doing the hardest routes or establishing them or, or was it just like, I, I, this is who I am now. I'm, I, I climb hard and I'm going to go climb hard. 
on these different yeah mediums. i'd say more of that i yeah. mean i was interested in like find the coolest crags and doing you know always trying to find the coolest lions yeah. you know i mean my thing was like i i I put up a lot of roots, but I, I don't think I was super prolific. I didn't mm-hmm. do lots of roots. But I like to do really good roots. Yeah. And uh, like for me, you know, at Smith Rock, I when I first went there, I, I saw Scarface. You know, it's like a line you can see from the parking lot. I love that. You know, to me, like the lines that you can just see. So I was always interested in that. And, um, you know, going to Crags, like when the New River Gorge was like becoming on, it was on the radar. You know, we heard about it, Brooke and I, like, oh, it's this incredible rock in West Virginia. It's the best rock in the country. Heard about it through Rob Turan at the time. I forget. Some other people told us about it. You got to come check it out. You guys can put up mm-hmm. a bunch of roots. And we're going there and thinking, yeah, it's pretty amazing. And we put up a couple of roots right away. And then, yeah, they actually brought us to the Meta River Gorge and we saw Mango Tango. Actually, Brooke had already mm-hmm. left that point. I was right. with Lynn. And um, I was like, I, I got to bolt this route. Like that was, I saw a line, like I yeah. have to bolt it. And they remember, you know, being for guys that climb at rifle or other crag, you have to do a lot of cleaning. Like Mango Tango, I wrapped down the root. I put in whatever the four or five bolts that the root is. It's pretty short. You just put the bolts in, take a toothbrush to put some chalk in the holes and like start climbing on it. Like in an hour, right. like that. No wire brush, right. nothing. Yeah. It's like ready to go. Yeah. And it's the best rock in the world. Yeah. Because Scarface involves some cleaning too. Scarface <laughs> is a little different, yeah. Yeah, we should talk about Scarface because I think there's like a lot of, there's all kinds of lore about what happened on Scarface right. and why the name. Well, the name was actually, because the root looks like a scar up that big face. Anyway, right. but there was a, when I started to bolt it and I wrapped down it, there's a big flake in the middle of the big, corner and it was Smith Rock has got these kind of like glued conglomerates of just choss and the flake was there was two things wrong with the flake one it was giant but it was loose it was never going to be it would have to be glued on cemented mm-hmm. to the wall or removed and I was I opted for the remove plan because I didn't have the glue technology for one but it was so big I didn't want to have a giant rest in the middle of the root because you know you do these kind of pockets at the bottom, and then there'd been a big jug if the thing was stable, and then you'd have the section above. And I thought it'd be a way better root if it was just gone. And it turned out it was better gone because now it's gone. <laughs> and yeah, how we got it off, it just turned into a big epic because I thought oh, I'll just pry it off because it's really loose, but it, it kind of broke off in like pieces, and it was just turned to a mess. I tried using M80s. I thought oh, we'll just blow it up, and we taped M80s That's up so underneath ridiculous. it. Yeah, it didn't do anything. It literally did nothing. I think a physics person in college could have told you that, but yeah. Yeah, but we thought maybe they'll do it, you know? Yeah, and then actually Mark Twight was out there. They went up there, <laughs> Mark and Randy, they they jugged up the line. They thought, oh, we'll use like an ice axe, you know, and we'll just pry it off. They couldn't get off and ended up just being basically like kind of brute force with like, you know, hammers and, and pry bars and got the thing off. So that that's how it actually went. Right. Um, <laughs> But anyway, yeah, back to Mango Tango, which is, I, you know, I only tell a story because I think um, you're asking, like, I, it wasn't like I set out to go do, make a statement. It's like, right. we just went, the line just had to be climbed and it was, it's awesome. And uh, also more for people that put up roots, like, that's just, it doesn't happen. I think where you can find a route where you literally do nothing other than put chalk on where the holes are so you can see them. Right. And you can climb on it. Like, you have to do nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Because like Rifle, yeah, it's famously. Like, it's their construction projects. Yeah, full you know? construction projects. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, so moving on from that, like, um, you know, 
Franklin climbing comes in here somewhere. And, in you know, I think of like the penniless kid, Bouchard calls him, yeah. gives him this lifeline. He becomes a professional climber. Also, you know, I remember mentioning your, you know, your, your family being like, what, what, what the hell are you doing? Yeah. So you're, you're a motivated person. You're not like just a complete, I, I think probably you're not a hippie. That's just like, hey, I'm going to just like do this until, you know, and sit in the woods and, so I'm just trying to like imagine like where there's this like okay I I'm I'm going to sustain this and I'm going to become a businessman. You're a businessman now, you know, on a different business. So but Franklin Kleiman like fits into the lore too because I think it was a very forward thinking company in some ways because it, you know you saw like the bouldering revolution before the sure. bouldering revolution. Yeah. Even not being that much of a boulderer, I guess. Yeah, know? well right, we when we started so Franklin Kleiman was really an evolution of like I was always even all of my time climbing, and I, after a while, things I, I really became really involved with Matolia, and right. because I, you know, part of the Smith Rock family and Brooke and Doug Phillips, and um, you know, really spent a lot of time with them. And I've always been interested in design, and you know, I'd say I'm entrepreneurial I'm more than a business guy. Right, right. I don't even know what the difference is really, but you know, I, I'd say I'm really a product guy. I, I have ideas around making things work. And I have a, that kind of engineering design sense, I'd say. So, you know, in 1995, I'd already been sort of climbing full-time professionally for however long that was, eight or nine, 10 years, something like that. And I was really feeling like, you know, I wasn't 95. I don't know. I was a, I just felt like I need to do more than just climb. Um, and I, you know, not that my passion for climbing was any different, but I just needed more than just just climb, rest, climb, rest. And I had some interesting, just interest in other things, you know, making things. And I thought, oh, well, I'll just start this company. We'll make climbing products and I'll still keep climbing. And that was the evolution. And, you know, we had already done a lot of work at that time with Metolius and they made a line of climbing holds. And really where the company started was making stuff for climbing gyms, making climbing holds and other products around that side of the business. That's where it started. You know, I remember starting when we wanted to have the idea of building a climbing company, I wanted to call it Acme Climbing. We thought, oh, we'll call it Acme Climbing because, you know, then A would be the top of the list. And you know, we were joking about like, we'll make it right. really interesting. People said, are you fucking stupid? <laughs> like everybody that climbs knows your name. Right. And that's a really important thing when you start a business to be and have name recognition. Right. You should call the company Franklin Climbing. And then you'll have customers. And I was like, okay. It's still pretty up there on the alphabet. <laughs> it's still pretty good. Right. Exactly. So we're like, <laughs> okay, all right, beginning. fine, we'll do that. <laughs> and, um, you know, through the time, the, all the years of climbing and being involved in the industry with Metolius, had great connections. And then we launched a company. And I remember, you know, we, we had a connection with REI at the time. And um, they became a customer right away. So, of course, if you make products, we'll buy it. And then we'll put it in the store. And so they gave us some orders to start making holds for the for the REI stores. And I remember we were like such, we knew how to make stuff, but we didn't know how to do the business side. And I remember we made the first order shipped to REI. And then we realized, how do you get paid? We didn't know how you like actually get the money from REI, you know? <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd had the same problem when this thing started making money. I was yeah. like, okay, so then... Then wait, wait, yeah. yeah. Do I just call mom and say, hey, do you, you guys are going to give me that money or... How do I do that? They're like, you invoice us. I'm like, that, okay. Exactly. I was like, okay, so then- What does that mean? Yeah, so then I downloaded the word template 
invoice right. template. I was like, okay. So I put now my, what? my address on here and then what do I do? <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. So. We did that. Yeah. <laughs> so since then we've learned a lot about business. Right. <laughs> but yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah. It's yeah. really good. Yeah. But I mean, product wise, I mean, it's cool. Like climbing is like bouldering pads. All those yeah, things. Yeah. 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 And chalk and right. holds and clothes and all those kind of things that we thought like people would need. And, you know, that would kind of solve those problems and make it cooler and better. And- well, in the, in the, in the, I think part of the deal too is that I think anyway, and you know, there's you guys and Pusher, you know, was somewhere probably a little bit past you guys, but all these companies and you included Pusher more so, I think, but realize that there is this like style to climbing. Sure. And like, again, like kids like me that were wearing wool and like, you know, look, trying to look like Royal Robbins. Like, yeah. That was like, there was this new thing. And exactly. I think maybe took some hints from skateboarding, some hints from surfing. Like there was these pursuits had created styles that went around them. And I feel like Franklin was like kind of an early dabbler in that. For idea sure. Of like, well, what does a climber wear that's not, not just about function? Yeah. You know? not function just, for sport climbing. Yeah. What does that I, mean? Yeah. It doesn't yeah. mean you, it means you can wear cotton. Yeah. You know, like the death cloth. Exactly. Were, right. The mountaineer's death cloth. Like, exactly. I'm not wearing cotton. It's like, Actually, you know, yeah. Smith Rock. It's a, raining. You're going to go to the car. You're going to yeah, leave. You're yeah. going to leave. So your yeah. your cotton hoodie's fine. Dude. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you're not bivying on the yeah. North Face. So Which fine. I sent you a picture of. I got my hands on a vintage Franklin hoodie. All right. Nice. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, but um, yeah. So, you know that that's kind of like the cool thing about that. I mean, it was successful. Um, you, you know, you sold it to BD. Yep. Um, was that just again about moving on to something different? Starting Frank Climb was like my business, my, my bachelor's degree in business. Right. Because, you know, we just went from climbing to doing business. And we learned a lot about how to run a company. And then when the whole BD interaction really was like my MBA. That's mm-hmm. when I got my master's. That was my real world schooling and how the world really works. Some hard lessons for sure. Big interaction with Peter Metcalf, who is a, he's a real businessman. And <laughs> I'll put it that way. He's a PhD. He's on the PhD. He's level. PhD. He's sort of, <laughs> yeah. So I'd say um, that interaction taught me a lot. And I think, um, you know, when I look at now that we're, you know, been in business for a long time, um, it was a real world MBA. You know, I look at people that say they have MBAs today. I'm like, mm. you don't know shit about business. You have no idea what actually goes on, how, mm. what the real pressures are and what decision-making looks like. And um, I think going through that process with Peter, both, Watching him and, and the team at BD and learning from BD, but also being on the other side of that kind of interaction was pretty strong. And right. um, BD took over at Franklin and we, we actually moved the company down to Salt Lake City. We lived in Salt Lake for a little while. And um, in 99, I had a bad paragliding accident and I was pretty broken. I was working at BD and I was like, I was really fucked up. Um, it really, that was like the turning point for me, like realizing I need to get the fuck out of BD for one. I really can't mm-hmm. be here anymore because it's sucking the life force out of me. And the other thing was Salt Lake City is a great place if you're single and you don't have kids or you have kids and they're Mormon, but kids that are not Mormon, it's a hard place to raise them. You know, our kid, our son was two and a half and, you know, we realized, well, what are we going to do? We can't have play dates with our friends at school because they're not in the church and it was super weird. And then the, the weather's terrible, the conversions, all those things, you know? So all that 
combines like it's time for us to get out of Salt Lake City. So we, um, when I was recovering from the paragliding accident, I was kind of reaching out to my network and finding, you know, basically any kind of lifeline out of BD and ended up taking a job as Sportiva at that time and moved to Colorado. That's how we moved to Netherlands. So came here and, you know, worked for Sportiva for, I don't know, maybe five or six months and then <laughs> started doing my own thing again. <laughs> But it was great. And yeah. it was really, it was a good opportunity to kind of get out uh-huh. of Salt Lake City and sort of change the channel. And what's your own thing now? Well, now we, um, so for that period, I, I was working doing independent design. I worked for Petzl and for Montreal mm-hmm. doing design development stuff. But in 2006, I started a solar company. Were you um, involved in the Montreal's climbing shoe? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Did Short-lived. Mont- short-lived thing. And, you know, that was also interesting experience of working with them. And, you know, they... They also became acquired by Columbia, and I think you know at that time was some of the guys there were they wanted to get into climbing, but you know that's a long that's a long term commitment, right? right? You're going against people like Sportiva and Scarpa. They're you know hundred plus year old companies yeah. doing it. Yeah, like you need to be committed. You know, it's not just like a two or three season thing. No, I, I literally remember quote unquote Montreal climbing athletes that when the cameras weren't around were climbing in sportiva shoes yeah so. <laughs> exactly because it takes a long time yeah, yeah you know you sure. got to develop yeah. shoes and product right. and the, all the things that go around it right. and uh it very you know and then they, they got acquired and right. it all kind of ended their ice boots too they did were trying to make boots mm-hmm. with crampons and you know jim Danini and myself were like kind of with the, helping them with development stuff so yeah uh, but yeah, now we do start a solar company and that's what we do. We make solar products. And um, and when I started that company, really at the time, I was like kind of looking around at my life and going, spending a lot of time in China, doing product development at that time for Petzl and for Montreal and traveling back. And my, I had two kids at that point. They're both really young. And I was thinking, what am I doing with my time? You know, I it's a finite time we have here, right? I was kind of just doing that inventory on life and saying to myself, like, what can I tell my kids I'm doing when I'm traveling to China? Like I'm making climbing carabiners and climbing shoes. Like that's what I travel away from you for. Meanwhile, you know, this was like during Bush one and Bush two, I was freaking out politically. And, and I was just trying to do this kind of gut check going, what can I do with my life that I could at least say to my kids, I'm at least trying to help this fucked up world. You know, I'm not just adding solving problems for people that don't have them. You know, climbers don't have problems. If you're buying climbing stuff, you're doing fine. And solving, making your climbing shoes better is a great problem, but I felt like I could maybe do something a little bit better. (laughs) And um, so I started, I did this whole inventory and said, what can I do with my time on this earth that I can at least say was helping move in the right direction? Not solving the world's problem, but at least I could say my efforts were going to making it better. And I did this reverse engineering exercise. What can, you know, with my capital that I had available to me, my skills, my, my, what can I do? And I came up with the idea of building solar products and basically prefab structures, you know, it'd be like a little cabin with solar panels and, and batteries that could be deployed for like remote locations, cabins, hunting, skiing, disaster relief, things like that. That was the concept because I'm a product guy and I built the prototype of that. And it was called Light. I called it Lighthouse Solar. That was the name of the company. Like, I'm going to make these little lighthouses. So I started down this road building, you know, I left Montreal and Petzl and I started doing this. And um, everybody's like, are you nuts? Like, you're going to, what are you doing? Solar what? But I really wanted to be part of the world at large. I felt like I just spent this whole, my whole adult life in the climate yeah, industry. Right, right, right. And I thought, I want to be part of like the world outside. 
where people don't know me. Mm-hmm. They don't know Scott Franklin as a climber. They just like, I'm just like a guy and I make these things. And that's where it started. Ironically, one of the, the first customer I had, this guy up on Magnolia Road called me and said, hey, can you come down and I want to do solar on my, my property. I've got an organic herb garden. I was like, oh, of course, organic herbs. Yeah, no problem. Magnolia Road. I, I understand you. No problem. Be right over there. <laughs> wink, wink, nod, nod. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> say no more. Say no more. <laughs> I go down there. Well, f- funny thing is- and It's he, like actually herbs. You're like, oh, Exactly. Cool. <laughs> no, literally was. So like this super hippie guy, this beautiful family, all the naked kids outside, long hair. I'm like, yeah, so where's the herb garden? And they show me like, oh, it, they actually are herbs. Like, <laughs> and, uh, but the funny thing was he found me because he's a climber. Right. Oh, so I'm okay. like, dude, I'm trying to be like outside of the climbing world and like, but it worked out great. And Josh Elmore is his name and became also one of my best friends and um, went out to do lots of cool stuff. So it was kind of fun. I was trying to get out of the world at large. Right, my right. first real solar project was yeah. with a, a climber guy. That's funny. Yeah. It's like, you, I'll buy this thing for me, but you have to go climbing with me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You're like, so, yeah. All right, fine. Fine, no problem. Yeah. 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 Well, that's cool. I mean, it's evolved. It's, it's, it's successful. It's a living. It's, it's yeah. It's well, I mean, did. and it's forward. It was forward thinking, you know? <laughs> Like it's the same kind of evolution design thinking, like how do we make things better? You know, mm-hmm. how do we make things yeah, make a the better design is like all about like how does it work better? Right. You know, because you know, that's always the the problem you're trying to solve. And I think yeah. that's what we do, you know. So we right now we make architectural solar products, like kind of our niche. So we right. don't compete with the big Chinese guys and you know, the giant multinational yeah. corporations. So that's what we do. And the van life climbers like Jordan Cannon are still hitting you up. <laughs> Can't get away from the climbers. Exactly. It's, it's not a problem. Now it's like, you know, a different version. I looked at his rig, dude. I was like, he's like, I don't even understand how this works. Scott, Scott put it in here. Yeah, I don't yeah, really yeah. know how it works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's way different than mine. You know, we started about how like I spotted you and got all excited. And, and you know, part of the thing is it's like, I, 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 I like see climbers who've been at it for a really long time. Guys like you who were at the top of the game. And then, I always, you know, part of my investigation on this podcast and everything else is like, well, what does climbing mean now? And then also like when and where was it healthy and where was it unhealthy? And for a lot of people later in age, you know, especially someone who climbed as hard as you did, you know, you were the, I mean, best climber in in the United States at, at what you were doing for a while. You know, sometimes the come down from that. Is can be really difficult, and people get out of climbing because they're like, "Well, my performance is lagging; it doesn't give me what I want anymore." So, you know, I've interacted with you in rifle since. You've got your son who was into it, and I think that's really healthy. And you know, having a relationship with your son through climbing is usually a pretty cool thing. And and so it's like brought me a little bit of joy to be like, "Yeah, Scott's still doing it. This is cool." Oh yeah. And so like, don't dispel that for me. Tell me what climbing means to <laughs> yeah. you right now. You're just I like, mean, oh, I'm still. I hate it. I'm always injured. I fucking. It sucks. Oh, it's the know. same for me. Right. Honestly, climbing's. Um, I I love it. You know, and I think I um, I don't climb as hard as I used to, but mm-hmm. I love it more. You yeah. know, I think I get more out of um, everyday climbing. What I feel like is as you get older, life is like you have this backpack, right? Now I've got a business, I have family, I have, I'm a lot heavier mentally, right? right? I got a little more going on and I can't just like throw it all by the wayside and just like, I'm just going to do this route. I don't fucking care. I'm dropping my backpack off. I'm leaving it. Exactly. <laughs> the backpack's harder to take <laughs> right. out, but it's also interesting, different mental challenge. Like right. how do you 
you know, and also the other thing that's interesting that I've been done a lot more recently is injuries. Like, you know, I've had my share over the years. Um, it's a hard game, you know, physically mm -hmm. it's a hard game. And as you get older, that collection of injuries is kind of is compounding. It's like compounded interest. It actually increases. So you, you know what can go wrong a lot more, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so I'm more aware of that and taking big whippers and weird falls and, you know, especially track climbing and adventure mode. You're just, you know, a little bit more kind of cautious is the word, but yeah. I mean, cause that's tough. still in your life too. I mean, we're talking totally. rifle, but I mean, you were out on, on El Cap not too long ago. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's still, I and mean, my, I spend more time in the mountains now than I ever do. Cause right. now, you know, as I'm getting older, like ski touring, alpine skiing, you know, skiing in the mountains is right. like. I spend a lot more time now than I used to because walking uphill slowly is more enjoyable to me than it was when I was like 18. <laughs> I've always done it, but now I really like it, right. you know, and spending long days in the mountains is, I just, I need to do that. There's an enormous phrase that I coined, which is that those are the, like just walking somewhere is the long approach to nowhere. <laughs> Yeah. Which is just absurd when you're 25. Like, where are we going? Why exactly. are we walking? <laughs> yeah, I hate this. Yeah. <laughs> now I like, now yeah. I seek out yeah. those long walks, right. you know, the longer the better. You know, you also married a climber and someone who, you know, yep. had her own career. Yep. And, and so, I mean, it's, you know, it's, you have a climbing family. And, Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's cool because we, you know, it's one of the things that G and I share and we love to climb together and we, um, we have so much fun and she's definitely a sport climber. Mm-hmm. You know, I've made her do routes like the Baccarian and things like that in Yosemite. And she's done them on, you know, follow them. She, right. That's about it. And begrudgingly, we've climbed like in the Dolomites Well, together. making her belay that is quite a task as well. Yeah. I mean, I think. And she's game. You know, yeah. she's game. But to a point. <laughs> yeah. Um, as you've seen videos, like dudes get like completely smashed into that roof and shit on that <laughs> route when they're belaying, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So. So, yeah. So. Sport climbing, she loves sport climbing and, you know, just as much as ever. So mm -hmm. I think, you know, back to your question, I think when I think back about climbing for me, like it's, it's still the same magic. I, I think whether you're climbing 510 or 514, it's the same feeling, you know, and that moment of like doubt. It's to me, it's always about that moment of doubt, like where you're about to fall off, like what's going to happen? What do you do then? That's the interesting moment, you know, it was comes down to like, do you, climb through that or do you fall off and take you know, or do you take which is you know you succumb to it and i think that's the interesting moment so whatever level and you know now i don't climb as hard but you still get to that same point you know and it's it's a really interesting moment i think um as you get older you're more aware of it i feel like and um understand how you approach that moment and and what you do with it All right, folks, thanks for listening, and thanks to Scott for doing that. Went to his house, sat down, got it done face-to-face. -face. However, Scott was not done. We have an addendum, an addendum episode coming out, a, a, an in-between episode, a bonus episode, but not really a bonus because you guys don't pay for this shit, so it's not really bonus anything. Every podcast is a bonus when it's free. We'll call it a tweener, a tweener ep. Coming out in a couple days to uh, follow up with Scott on a couple things that he said he missed. He wanted to get in there, particularly shouting out some more friends. He stood on the shoulders of a lot of great climbers of that era. He wants to make sure and acknowledge that. All right, folks, thanks for coming to the show.
Let's get out there and have some fun, huh? Weather's good. Let's do it. And of course, check your knots. Why don't you get a job, Spicoli? What for? You need money. <laughs> All I need are some tasty waves, cool buzz, and I'm fine. <laughs>